Good morning. Thank you for being here. Tropical, balmy, Littleton, Colorado. <clears throat> I think I grabbed my wife's mask because every time I inhale, I'm getting like a, a, a thin application of makeup and lip gloss and yeah, so... Just a warning for when you're at home, all right? Uh, hey, before we get going, um, and if you're joining us online, you may not see this, but I need to just thank David and Lyle and Matthew. They cleared the walks for us to be able to get in here this morning. Would you thank them? And if you couldn't join us last week in person or online, we began talking through this idea of solving Waldo. And before you, before you see Waldo and think this is a junior church lesson, uh, let me explain. There are uh, many of you probably remember the Where's Waldo books, and you remember spending hours and hours and hours and hours trying to find Waldo. And what happened is over time, things have changed. And we did this very human thing where we tried to apply a formula to it. In fact, I was reading a few articles about a few different people that came up with a formula and an algorithm for finding Waldo. And not to be outdone, another guy actually created software with facial recognition capabilities to find Waldo in less than five seconds. Well, the creator of Where's Waldo got wind of this and he went, okay, it was never meant to be a formula. When I created Where's Waldo, I never intended that this would get reduced to a formula for finding Waldo. It was always a search. And as I read that, I just started thinking about us. Because the same thing we've done with Waldo, we have tried to apply to finding our own identities and finding God. We've in some ways tried to reduce it to a formula and a series of steps. And uh, formulas work great until they don't work. And that's, I'm a spreadsheet guy. I love formulas, okay? But what do you do when life gets broken? For instance, 2020. What do you do when the formula that you've applied and relied on doesn't quite explain everything? It doesn't quite solve everything in front of you. What do you do then? What do you do when the firefighting job and career that you've pursued for years, the fire department comes to you and they say, Nathan, we don't want you to do the job of firefighter. We just need you to pose for our calendar, okay? What do you do? I know I told that story differently last week, but that's how I need you to remember it, okay? (laughs) See, formulas work until they don't. Because you you know what? God intended that we would search and find him. That's what he intended. And so as we opened the book of Exodus last week, and we we began looking at Moses' life, we discovered that there are some elements that God will use to shape us and, and his timing and his way of doing it Well, it's his. It's his. It's not human formula or anything like that. It is his shaping, formative love that forms us into who we are in Christ. And so we were looking at these elements. Last week, as we looked at the beginnings of Moses' life, we discovered that one of those elements may be that we have a loving Heavenly Father who will allow us to spend a little or a lot of time being who we're not. And while you and I think that might make him angry at us, spending some time being who we're not, you know what it is? Is you look at Moses' life, and I bet you could look back at your life, you realize his presence is there all along, over and over and over. But after we've spent some time in who we're not, there is another element that comes into play that we're going to talk about today. And it begins with the verse that we ended at last week, verse 15 of chapter 2 of Exodus. Let me read this to you. When Pharaoh heard of this, that is, 
he had heard that Moses, Moses, after feeling a stirring to go rescue somebody, Moses murdered an Egyptian because that's what he thought was best in the moment. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. This is Moses, a Hebrew who had grown up in Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh's after him, he wants to kill him, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now, if you were just reading this and you didn't know anything about Midian, you might just keep going. But to stop and look at the region on a map at this time of Midian, you know what you would find? You'd find a Gulf region on the coast, but as far as it extends, you realize that most of Midian is wilderness. And it is a desert, an absolute desert. And it's arid and it's dry and it's parched. And the Bible does this thing where it'll give us in one sentence something that really represents something much, much larger. In fact, in the book of Acts, what we learn is that Moses spent right around 40 years in Midian. I mean, you think 2020 has been long and that 2020 has felt like a desert, but 40 years in Midian. And the hard part for us is that we don't associate the wilderness with the will of God. I mean, if you were to think about your seasons of wilderness, whether it's in the past or you feel like you're walking in one right now, or if you knew one was coming in the future, isn't it true you'd probably start trying to avoid or get out of the wilderness? Because this is what we do. When we describe the wilderness in those seasons of life, it's not tied to the same words we use to describe the will of God or even being seen by God. In fact, most of the time we look at the desert and we feel deserted by God, don't we? We say things like dry and parched and arid and thirsty and lost and I can't see or I can't feel or I can't find because we don't associate the wilderness with the will of God. And yet it may just be one of the most formative elements that God could use in our lives as you look at the life of Moses. See, isn't it interesting that when, when you look around and life is, uh, you know, it's abundant and it's lush and it's green and, and we feel like we have all we need, you know, we've got peace like a river and love like an ocean and joy like a fountain. But when things are rough, peace is like a water balloon about that fragile. And, and uh, you know, we've got love like a puddle. And we've got joy like a leaky faucet for people. I've shared this story because it's one I never want to let go of. But there is something about being in the wilderness place that causes us to just focus in on ourselves. And we can't see outside of it, can we? I'll never forget, Carol was in the middle of giving birth to our our first child. And she's in pain beyond pain. And I wanted to be there for her. The problem is she was squeezing this hand. The one, you've ever had your hand squeezed with a ring on it? I mean, that hurts. That hurts bad. But when you're next to somebody who's giving birth, I I mean, I learned, you just shut your mouth. You just shut your mouth. But I didn't learn in that moment. And I asked her, could you you loosen your grip a little? Because this this is painful. But see, this this is common to all of us. When you're in the wilderness, whether it be a season of pain or, or just emptiness or loss or looking around, you don't feel like it's enough. We do this thing where we zero in on ourselves. And that's why I think it's so important that we read the next handful of of verses after verse 15. Because what you see is that in the place that Moses and you and I would like to most avoid, we find what we most need. That God has not forgotten about Moses and he has not forgotten about you 
or me, but more importantly, God has not let off doing what he's doing in this world. Look at verse 16. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because if you, if you remember last week, what was Moses trying to do a handful of verses before this? He was trying to rescue somebody. Because part of the fingerprint of God on Moses specifically is that he had stirred in his heart to rescue, to go rescue. And when he was in Pharaoh's household, that came out in a very distorted way. Rescue resulted in him murdering somebody. Now here's Moses. He's not in the household of Pharaoh any longer. He is out in the wilderness. And what do we see him doing? It's this God-given, God-prepared purpose that was placed inside of him. Rescue. Moses got up and came to their rescue. And see, this is important for us to know because when you look around and you see the wilderness and you can't see anything happening and it doesn't feel like progress, it feels like moving backward, one of the things we do is we begin asking these really big questions like what's my purpose and why is this happening and how long is this going to last and what is going on? And there's this comforting reminder here that whether it was in Pharaoh's household or out in the wilderness, there was something that God had placed inside of Moses. There was a stirring to be part of rescue and deliverance that, that the Heavenly Father kept right there in the heart of Moses. His purpose remained inside of him, even when everything around him had changed. Now, that's big picture. There's this really cool example that, or really cool thing that happens next that points to the, the much smaller picture. Take a look, verse 18. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, other, otherwise known as Jethro, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian. An Egyptian. They thought Moses was an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And then their dad asks this question. Because a light bulb has gone off in the mind of a dad with daughters. That not all guys are like this. Well, where is this guy? He says, and where is he? Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. This sounds like a great guy. And it's so interesting that while we see the purpose of God still intact, we also see the loving hand of provision of God. That he knew Moses needed his next meal after running into the wilderness. And that God is so big, he didn't lose sight of the purpose. And yet God has his eye on every single detail that he knew. He knew he could stir the heart of someone else to provide even a meal for Moses. It continues. Moses gains something else in the wilderness that he probably wasn't looking for. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. So now Moses has found family. In fact, as we read the next verse, you see a child arrives as well. And I thought, okay, if I could just step back from Moses' life for a minute and look at my life, isn't it true, whether literally or symbolically, when you're in the wilderness, God does something with that. He tends to bring people together. If you look around and as you look through Scripture, the thread of Scripture is that God's people, they're oppressed, they're persecuted, they're in captivity. You could call it a wilderness. And yet there is a family that is provided that we now know as the body of Christ, 
as the church. And yet for all that God gave Moses in the wilderness, stuff he may not have even been looking for, there are some things that Moses lost in the wilderness as well that you and I lose in the wilderness. Look at verse 22. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Now think about that statement for a minute. I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Moses realizes he has lost everything he had depended on before. I mean, I imagine growing up in Pharaoh's household, it had some luxuries and it probably had some comforts and some things that he likely, like you and I, would grow to depend on. And he says, now I'm in a foreign land. All that is gone. But about himself, he says, I've become a foreigner. In other words, I, I have become unknown. I don't even know who I am anymore. Because one of the truths of the wilderness for every single one of us, Moses, you, me, is that while we gain what we may not have been looking for, we also lose what we'd been holding on to, what we'd been depending on. And if that's not enough, God is not done. Because at the end of Exodus chapter two, what happens is we get this shift in perspective. And suddenly we're going to see through God's eyes. Verse 23 says this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. See, suddenly you're getting this glimpse of this huge grand plan. And the thing that Moses couldn't possibly see yet in the wilderness were these few verses. He couldn't possibly have seen. He only knew a sense of rescue inside of him. He had no idea. And you may not have any idea in the wilderness that God wants to take his heart and what he's placed inside of us, the good works he's prepared in advance. And he wants to marry those two together to do something in the world. See, it's in the wilderness that we gain what we may not have been looking for. We lose what we've been clinging and holding on to. But God may very well be beginning or continuing something that we can't see yet. I often point back to the decade of my 20s as my wilderness. And the reason I point back at my 20s is because, yes, the whole firefighting thing happened and then it, it just crashed, uh, at least as far as is, uh, me doing that for a career. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, this is terrible. And I had, a, I had a lawn business all the way through it. And um, I just knew I didn't want to do that forever. Um, it, was nice to, it was nice for a while, but I knew I didn't want to do that forever. And, excuse me, and then we got to I was working with junior hires, um, and that was a very side thing here. That was never on the radar. That was like wilderness for a while, it felt like. But early in my 20s, I had also starting in a, started an accounting degree because I just, I thought, well, I should do something. And I remember I just didn't love it. I mean, I love numbers. I love spreadsheets. I just didn't love the accounting thing. And I'll never forget nearly 10 years after I started this accounting degree, I'm sitting in a graduation ceremony at Metropolitan State College of Denver, it was called at the time. And I, it just, this, this was like the end of 10 years of working on this bachelor's degree in accounting, a degree that should happen in four years in theory. And so they get this girl to get up and give this graduation speech. And you know, 
she's, she's like trying to give the inspirational speech of all graduation speeches. And so I admire her heart for trying, but here's what she said. She said, okay, I stand here before you today beaming as I look out among all of you because some of you, you planned on this taking four years and it took you an extra semester. It took four and a half years. And I was like, you're going to have to do better than this. You just, this is, this is not working for me. Then she goes on, and some of you have really battled and it has taken you six years. And I'm like, you rookies, this is, this is nothing because the whole time I'm thinking, I just spent 10 years on this degree. And I know if you've seen Tommy Boy, the line is crossing your mind right now. Lots of people go to school for 10 years. They're called doctors, Nathan. <laughs> and so I'm just sitting here going, this is the end of 10 years? This is what it is? And I realize as I look back now that God gave me some things during that time that I couldn't see, that I was not looking for. And he began to strip away some things I had depended on because there were multiple identities I was trying to find, especially in my 20s. And of course, that's a lifelong process, but I could not figure out. I, I knew Jesus, and at the core, I knew that my identity was in Christ, but what did the expression of that look like? And my formulas weren't working because this was a search but it's only now that I can realize during that time that God in the depths of my heart was stirring something that I just couldn't see at that time. And so in this, in this account, the handful of passages we just read, Moses does something that I think is instructive for you and for I, for myself. Because what he does is he names his wilderness. In this poor child who had to be named, I have become a foreigner living in a foreign land, for, for Moses, it was a reminder that whenever he saw this child, whenever he thought of this name, this was his wilderness. Now, how many of us would do that? See, most of the time, I want to forget my wilderness. I want to avoid the wilderness. I want to get through it as fast as I can. But Moses names it. And there's something powerful in that because when you name your wilderness, you know what? You now have an anchor. You have an anchor over time to point back to to see what God has done in that time. Because as you live and gain more experience and as more time goes by, then that wilderness begins to take on greater and greater significance. We have a couple of um, friends that they for years and years had this small, I think it was a Yorkshire Terrier named Hershey. Okay, and Hershey this last March uh, just died of old age. And so this was right after the shutdown and they got a new dog about a month and a half later. And I realized they named the wilderness. Do you know what they named their new dog? In the middle of the shutdown, in the middle of the global pandemic that we've known in 2020, you know what they named their dog? Zoom. They named their dog Zoom. And I thought that's, that's naming the wilderness right there. And when I asked them about it, they said, we don't want to forget what God has done in this season. And the reason that we need to name our wilderness is because we need something to be able to point at and say God is and has and will continue to be faithful. It's not too different from what a man named Nathaniel said in John chapter 1. Some, some of his friends come to him and they say, we found the Messiah in Nazareth. And you know what Nathaniel's response was? <laughs> Nazareth, pointing, pointing at the place that looks so useless. Nazareth. Can anything good 
come from there? Well, yeah, that might just be where the Messiah is at. And so it's with that in mind that I want us to think about our wilderness, but I want you to think about where Moses' time in the wilderness started. It's where we ended last week and where we started today. Let me read verse 15 again. Exodus 2, chapter 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Did you know that in the middle of the wilderness, there's a well? There's a well there. And that's not accidental. That is divinely placed. Because the well for Moses and the well for the daughters of this priest named Jethro, that was a place of rescue. You know where else it's a place of rescue? John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus is on a journey. He's going through Samaria. He's tired from the day's journey. And he comes to a well, and he does exactly what Moses did. He sat down. And while for Moses the well was the place of rescue, in John chapter 4, the well is the place where Jesus is going to anchor us and show us his rescue. Because he has this conversation with a Samaritan woman. She shows up during a time of day that she likely didn't want to be seen, maybe because of the life she had lived. Maybe she didn't want to be seen by by people at at a time where more people were showing up at the well. And she comes to the well and Jesus says to her, you're looking for water, physical water. But I tell you, I'm the source of living water. See, rescues happen at the well. And it doesn't just affect us. In fact, the woman goes to her, her town, comes back, introduces more people to this living water, and more people are rescued. Rescues happen at the well. And that, that should tell us something. That for all the staring and all the wishing and all the trying to fix and, and formulate a way around or getting through faster the wilderness, you know what Jesus says? You don't need to change the wilderness. Just come to the well. Because it's at the well of God that our wilderness is transformed for the will of God. Moses knew. Moses eventually discovered. You and I, if we don't already know, we will eventually discover that we cannot lead anybody through the desert, anybody through the wilderness, without first having discovered the well in the midst of it ourselves. Now, I don't know what that means, for you, maybe for the first time, after trying to fix and formulate and get through the wilderness more efficiently or more quickly, maybe for the first time, it's going and sitting down at the well. You don't have to do anything else. Just go sit at the well in the presence of the living water of Jesus, our Savior. But I'd suspect for many of us, as I listen to people and as I talk to people, what we really need is to come back to the well over and over and over and sit at the well in the presence of living water and draw from and drink from the well. Because you know what? We're forgetful people. We're very forgetful people. We forget that, that it's at the well of God. Our wilderness is transformed for the will of God. And we forget to take a drink from the well. It's one of my favorite stories. It's about a group of uh, 30-year-olds. They have a reunion And they get together at 30 years old and they're trying to figure out where to go for dinner. And one of them says, well, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember Tavern? 
because I've heard the waiters and waitresses, they're young and attractive, and maybe we'll find somebody there. And so they all agree, and they go to dinner at the Glowing Ember Tavern. Fifteen years goes by. They're 45 years old. They reunite, and they're, they're trying to figure out where to go to dinner. And one of them says, well, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember Tavern? Because the selection of food and wine is it's just plentiful, and it's good. And so they all agree, and they go to dinner. Fifteen years goes by. In this group of friends at age 60 years old, they go and they reunite and they're trying to figure out where to go for dinner. And one of them says, well, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember Tavern? Because it's peaceful, it's quiet. They serve dinner at 4 p.m. 15 years go by. They get together again. And they say, well, where should we go for dinner? Well, one of them, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember Tavern? It's physically accessible. There's an elevator, so we don't have to go up the stairs. Finally, one last time, 15 years later, this group of friends gets together. They're 90 years old. And one of them says, well, where should we go to dinner? Another one says, why don't we go to the Glowing Ember Tavern? Because we have never been there before. And that is not to make fun. I know we're all headed there, all right? But we're forgetful people. And you know what Jesus says? In the wilderness that is this life, just come to the well. Come to the well. I know you've got different motivations during different seasons of life. Just come to the well and sit in his presence. And so, would you name your wilderness this week as you reflect on Exodus chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. Would you name your wilderness? Because that may just be the place where God first opens your eyes to the well full of living water that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as the worship team comes back up to close with one more song, let me read this this, uh, quote to you. It's by Thomas Merton. We read this, I believe, last year sometime. But it's good perspective, and it's a good reminder for us about the wilderness times. Thomas Merton says this about the desert. The desert fathers believed that the wilderness had been created as supremely valuable in the eyes of God precisely because it had no value to men. The wasteland was the land that could never be wasted by men because it offered them nothing. There was nothing to attract them. There was nothing to exploit. The desert was the region in which the chosen people had wandered for 40 years, cared for by God alone. They could have reached the promised land in a few months if they had traveled directly to it, if they had a formula. God's plan, that was my addition, not Thomas Merton. God's plan was that they should learn to love him in the wilderness and that they should always look back upon the time in the desert as the idyllic time of their life with him alone. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are reminded over and over and over by your word and and your spirit using your word in our lives that while we look around and, and we don't see evidence of you in our lives and we're trying to figure out who we are, that you are a God, that whether we see it or not, know it or not, you are present and you see us. And when you look at us, you see our savior, Jesus Christ. And so would you remind us this week that as we, as we walk through wilderness, as we look back at one, as maybe we look forward toward one, that we can be reminded that you are just as present as always in our lives, in that time in the wilderness. Remind us to look around in the wilderness. Remind us we're welcome at the well. 
that we can come to the well and we can draw from and drink from the living water in order to be sustained, to be nourished, to be formed by you. That you, that you through us would carry out the good works you prepared in advance because of the first work of our Savior, Jesus Christ at the cross. Write that on our hearts in the days and weeks and months and years to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.